the annexation of Palestinian water. Uh, we uh, would like to uh, thank uh, the co-organizers of this event, the Institute of Palestine Studies and the Palestinian American Research Center. Thank you uh, to IPS and PARC for organizing this timely webinar. Um, my name is Muna Dejani, and I will be joined today in conversation with Dr. Abdurrahman Tamimi and Dr. Stephen Gastire. Um, and the title again of this webinar is Denying Life, the Annexation of Palestinian Water. Um, this webinar will, uh, will last for an hour and a half, and uh, it, will be, um, it will be divided into 10 minutes of an introduction that I'll give about the topic um, and a brief, inter a brief um, um, introduction of the speakers. Um, and then it will be followed, uh, for each speaker will have 20 minutes um, to present. And this will also be followed by a 10 minutes uh, wrap up discussion and opening the floor for uh, questions and answer for Q&A. Uh, please feel free to submit your comments and questions in the chat box provided. And we'll be, we'll be filtering those uh, so that Q&A can start promptly after uh, our discussion is done. Um, first, um, to start, we wanted to highlight uh, with, within the looming uh, threat of annexation um, uh, by uh, a threat that or a plan that was uh, announced by the Israeli government, annexation of, uh, of uh, vast areas of the West Bank, compromising up to 30% of it, including the Jordan Valley. Uh, that is well known to everyone uh, for its strategic, geostrategic, cultural, and political significance. Um, the Jordan Valley contains 50% of Palestinian agricultural lands. Um, at some point in time, uh, 250,000 Palestinians, mostly farmers and pastoralists, were living uh, there. Today, um, the situation in the Jordan Valley and in vast uh, areas of the, of the West Bank, especially in Area C, are, uh, have, have been really dire. And the population has been reduced to less than 60,000 people. For, surrounded by a very um, uh, un, uh, a systematic dispossession of Palestinians from their land, from their natural resources, um, and uh, followed by uh, a congregation of settlements uh, and settlers. Um, today as well, we wanted to highlight that the annexation of Palestinian water and the story of uh, the dispossession of Palestinian water does not start uh, with this plan of annexation and does not end there. I wanted to, um, as a moderator of this talk, just to highlight three points, and I'm sure that our distinguished speakers will be able to uh, tell us in more details um, uh, about the annexation itself and its ramifications on Palestinian livelihood um, and um, self-determination. Uh, but I wanted to highlight three main points. Um, first, that annexation is not a standalone plan or event that, that we are um, kind of uh, really um, taking into account its impacts, but it's part and parcel of Israel's settler colonial policy and systematic uh, denial of uh, Palestinian rights to uh, self-determination, rights to resourcehood, and uh, rights to, uh, to access to natural resources. Um, so in order to really understand what's going on today, we have to really look at the root causes of uh, and the underlying conditions of this resource uh, dispossession um, um, from not, not even in 1948 in the Nakba, but also even prior to that with Zionist ambitions to control, uh, control water um, um, in the Jordan River Basin and the wider region. And the kind of 
um, how these decades of disenfranchisement of Palestinians and their uprootedness from attachment to their natural resources has created parallel realities. These parallel realities we do not see only in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. We do see it in with the with Palestinian uh, communities inside of Israel proper, and we also see it with other occupied lands like the occupied Golan Heights. So Israel and, and the Zionist entities consolidated this control over Palestinian and Arab water. And in the water lexicon, lexicon we say it has been a hydro hegemon. It has kind of enforced and concretized its hegemony over natural resources. So again, when we look at annexation today and we speak of annexation of Palestinian water, we have to look at this historical trajectory and understand this as part and parcel of a structure, not merely an event, or uh, a concern that we have to uh, be, uh, be aware of today. The annexation, um, of, uh, the annexation plans also raises concerns from a water perspective, um, as it being kind of the last nail in the coffin over the denial of Palestinian water rights that have started again from this uh, decades-long uh, struggle, but it is also um, was manifested uh, when uh, the Oslo Accords uh, were signed, the interim agreement that was signed between Palestinians and, and Israel. So we have to also understand that uh, this annexation has this ramification um, on denying of Palestinian rights to the Jordan River Basin as a riparian, um, as a riparian uh, entity. Um, I, and another point I wanted to raise was that Water dispossession does not only deny Palestinians from access control and use of their natural resources, but it systematically denies them rights to resourcehood and rights to self-determination. Um, it destroys links between, between Palestinians and their history, culture, and, and lived environment, uh, in, in, in fact, it, impacting uh, tremendously and uh, transforming their identity and belonging, in addition to their cultural and spiritual well-being. Israel today uses more than 80% of West Bank water. In addition to that, especially after Oslo, it has commodified water and consolidated water control um, and made water um, a just um, um, a commodity to be traded and allocated, stripping it from its cultural and local and spiritual significance. This is very evident in the Jordan uh, Valley uh, as in other locations. Um, in addition to complicating the matter further after Oslo um, and with uh, uh, the rise of multiple actors as well that come, come into the picture when we want to understand uh, who are these actors that are today part complicit maybe uh, uh, in, in this uh, water denial and, and the water rights denial in Palestine, whether it's the international community and its uh, donor agencies, the Palestinian Authority and others. Um, and again, I just wanted to end by, uh, by another point um, that refers to the consolidation of this discourse that technology will save the day. And again, how do all of these factors uh, weigh in on uh, a dire situation, uh, a dire dispossession that has been going on um, in the West Bank, specifically in Area C, and most evidently and starkly in the Jordan, Jordan Valley? What does this annexation mean? To, uh, to, to, to Palestinians living in that area, what, does it, uh, what ramification does it have um, on rights to water uh, uh, and uh, to rights to water and resourcehood? I will start um, by, um, by just, uh, sorry, just opening the, the bios, but I will introduce uh, the speakers.
Um, sorry about that, just one second while I locate the file. Um, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, we will start today by uh, speak, by listening to Dr. Stephen Gasteyer. Dr. Stephen Gasteyer is an associate professor of sociology at Michigan State University. His research focuses on community development, environmental justice, and the political ecology of landscape change. Recent research has addressed community approaches to food, water, and sanitation access and water quality protection, settler colonialism, land grabs, technology, and modes of resistance, and environmental equity, service delivery, and the responses to COVID-19. Dr. Gasteyer was a 2015-2016 Fulbright Scholar at Birzeit University, um, and he has previously held posts as an assistant professor of human and community leadership development at the University of Illinois, and the, and the research and policy director at the Rural Community Assistant Partnership in Washington. Um, without further ado, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll open the, the, the floor to Dr. Gasteyer to share with us his perspective on uh, the recent annexation plans. Please, Dr. Gasteyer. Thank you so much, Dr. Tajani. Uh, it is really a, a great pleasure to be here and to be able to participate in this in this gathering. Um, I am uh, uh, very honored to be on this panel and very honored to be able to talk about this extremely important issue. Um, uh, I was asked by the organizers to really to really think about what does the uh, what does the progressive denial, as, as Dr. Dejani outlined for us, what does that um, progressive denial of resources mean in terms of, um, in terms of livelihoods of people, in terms of ability to do agriculture, in terms of ability to, do, to uh, cultivate livestock, um, husband livestock, in terms, in terms of the ability to, for people to have food and to produce food? Um, and how does this affect, in turn, um, health and culture and other things? So, um, so in response to that, uh, I'm uh, what I'm going to do now is to talk through a little bit how this plays out, right? Um, and uh, I've, I have some written text, so I'm going to try to read it, uh, um, and we'll see how this goes. So we know, in general, that Palestinians in the Jordan Valley are relatively deprived. Uh, um, are relatively uh, deprived of water resources. The implications to the lives of Palestinians living in the Jordan Valley of restrictions on land, uh, on access to land, denial of access to water resources, of historic worsening of conditions are important to tease out. Um, what I'm going to talk about then are the mechanisms of this denial. Um, uh, let's see. So I. I'm wondering if it would, can you all hear me well if I do this? If I speak like this, or do I need to be here? I think it's better to have the microphone close. It's, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. I know um, it, depending on the, on the technology that I, that's being used for the Zoom, it's either better to have it in front of my mouth or down from my mouth. So I'll try this. Um, 
So at the beginning of the 2000s, political ecology scholar Nancy Peluso introduced theories to try to explain how actors in a given, in a given area come to, access, uh, come to have access to land and natural resources. Her work, along with geographer Jesse Ribot's, uh, developed what they call a theory of access. Um, and they came to lay out a, a framework for understanding how particular parties gain, maintain, and control resources. The goal of the theory was to move the development, um, development discussion and the activist community beyond simply reverting to conversations about land tankings and questions of land tenure and property rights, which had been the tendency of those associated with institutions like the World Bank. Rather, Peluso and Ribot tried to lay out a theory of how particular actors, states, corporations, individual business interests, non-governmental organizations, set about, set about to gain, maintain, and control land and natural resources. Land and resources grabs, then, are not just about the exertion of military force, through, though, though such force is certainly part of the process. These grabs happen through strategically implemented processes, mechanisms, um, as I'll call them below, that are intended to secure resource access for some and limit it for others. For our purposes here, it is important to overlay this theory on the ongoing process of settler colonial expansion. Settler colonialism, um, which Dr. Dejani referred to, is the process of installing a settler population on a given piece of land territory, displacing the indigenous population in the process. It is the process through which the United States, South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, to name a few places, were established and accounts for the demographics and ongoing power dynamics within those places. The Zionist project of the establishment of Israel was and remains a settler colonial endeavor. And as the founder, um, founder of the concept of settler colonialism, uh, Patrick Wolf noted, Settler colonial states constantly seek new frontiers into which to expand, either through, either through the state itself or private actors backed by the state. Historian Avi Schleim has noted that the Zionist movement and indeed the, the Israeli government has long asserted a claim to the Jordan Valley, a desire to move into the Jordan Valley. So this explains why soon after the 1967 war, even as Israel um, internationally was was um, asserting that they had no desire to rule over Palestinians. They launched the Alone Plan, which um, which sought uh, which used the pretense of security to place civilian settlements throughout the Jordan Valley as a way of holding a presence in the territory. These settlements established uh, established themselves as agricultural entities whose goal was to was to place a presence holding the territory, asserting Israeli hegemony. Schleim argues that that the main difference between the Labour Party in Israel and the and Likud is that Labour always articulated this presence, whether or not sincerely, um, in the Jordan Valley as preparing for an ultimate land for peace deal whereas Likud ultimately saw the Jordan Valley as land to be ultimately incorporated into the state of Israel. And so we, we come to this moment where we're talking about annexation, and notably, um, the, it is a Likud-led government that has talked about annexation, and then they have uh, subsequently withdrawn that. But what we're going to establish today, I believe, both myself and Dr. Tamimi, um, is that this... Uh, 
annexation is is de facto moving forward, whether or not it gets a, an official declaration. So there's been a long, a long progressive expansion of processes and actions contributing to de facto annexation of the Jordan Valley as, as a territory under the hegemonic control of Israel. Below, I want to talk about six mechanisms of dispossession. For each one, I will try to contextualize um, uh, contextualize the endeavor to describe um, to describe the very real human effect of these mechanisms. The six mechanisms, to summarize, are uh, land confiscation for nature reserves and military areas. Water. The second is water abstraction from pumping and diversion for settlements. The third is permit restrictions. Um, that, that both serve to deny access to existing water resources for agriculture, but also the ability to adapt to diminishing water supply. The fourth is pollution or degradation of the water source. The fifth is denial of access to piped water sources. And the, and the sixth is transformation of the water source itself. Land confiscation, so now what I'm going to do is now walk through these, these six mechanisms. Um, and, and I'll describe what the mechanism is and what the effect is. How am I doing on time, just as a, an aside? Um, we still got uh, 12 minutes. Okay, wonderful. So first, land confiscation for, for um, nature reverse reserves and closed military areas. This, this really has happened since the occupation of the West Bank in 1967. Soon after the 1967 war, Palestinian access to the Jordan River was completely curtailed as land was declared, um, was declared a military area. This upended um, agricultural activities that were based on irrigation from the Jordan River. The declaration of these areas effectively has constrained the, the area for Palestinian Philahin, Philahin, Palestinian peasants for food production and food security, as well as Bedouin herders who are using that, that area as, as grazing land. Um, beyond the military areas, Israel has used a, a, um, a process of declaring land as natural areas. So, um, uh, so, so they have declared natural resources areas that um, that didn't, that constrain Palestinian access to to um, common lands. This was often a process that effectively cut off Palestinians from semi-annual land holdings. The declaration of of natural areas had two effects on Palestinians in the Jordan Valley. First, pre nineteen sixty seven. Sites such as Ein Jedi and Wadi, and, and, um, Wadi Kelt were actually used by Palestinians who, um, Palestinians who would engage in a semi-migratory pattern from the southern Hebron hills and would use those sites for fruit trees and, and um, small vegetable production. They would also use the land for grazing for, for herders. The villages of the southern Hebron hills would, would plant during the during the winter on the top of the West Bank mountain, and then, and then often would move in a semi-migratory pattern, using those springs for a period of time until, uh, until the onset of summer, then returning to the, higher, to the higher lands. The early moves to occupy the Jordan River in um, Ein Gedi and declaring it as a nature reserve 
we're part of a process of decoupling, uh, decoupling Palestinians from traditional grazing land and seasonal agricultural patterns. Second, the establishment of nature reserves in the Jordan Valley is a way of establishing a rhetorical claim to the land um, that uh, to, to the land Israel would like to say has been, has been empty or at least mismanaged. We can see this in the statement by Israeli Defense Minister Naftali ben Bennett on the announcement of seven new nature reserves um, earlier this year. Um, so Bennett says, there are, nature, there, there are nature sites with stunning landscapes in, the, in Judea and Samaria. And he added, um, we'll expand the existing ones and also develop new sites. I invite all Israelis to get up and roam through the land, come to Judea, Samaria, hike, discover, and continue the Zionist enterprise. In that statement, we, we can see the, the, that, the land, that the nature reserve is at once depicting the land as being empty. This is land where you can hike across these, these empty spaces and see the stunning landscapes and at the same time expressing the frontier that needs to be, needs to be captured. This is even as um, uh, the, the Israeli human rights group Betselin documented that, that thousands of dunams of already cultivated Palestinian private land was included in those nature reserve areas. Um, and, and actually even more telling Peace Now points out that it's not only Palestinian land, Israeli agriculture has also been creeping in right from the, right from the um, within months of the declaration of the area. The second mechanism is water abstraction from pumping and diversion of settlements, forest settlements. This practice effectively uh, dates to the um, diversion of the Sea of, Gal of the Jordan River from the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to to feed the national water carrier, limiting the flow to the Jordan, Val Jordan River, which is no longer deep and wide as depicted in the Abrahamic religious books, but rather, as Palestinian ecologists Jadisak and Jan Selby. Um, noted in an article way back in the 1990s, it is now a fetid trickle that conveys mostly sewage to the Dead Sea. Over time, water abstraction moved from surface water to groundwater. Abstraction um, uh, has, with has, has increased with settlements. And what settlements tend to do in the Jordan Valley say, is they tap into groundwater, uh, groundwater wells. The settlements tend to settle on top of hills, and then they dig deep wells that drain the water source for springs that feed Palestinian communities and are used for agriculture. An example is the community of Aloja, where the settlements of, of Yitav and, and Niran, established in the early 1970s, abstracted groundwater from deep wells, cutting the supply to the Aloja spring for agricultural production um, uh, and um, feeding agricultural production in the settlements themselves. This practice, along with restrictions on village land, dramatically reduced the agricultural production capacity for El Loja community. Over time, the once prosperous agricultural community has become relatively poor, with, with most of the population um, employed, most of the working population employed uh, working in, in the nearby settlements for as little as um, 70 Israeli shekels, that's roughly $20 per day. The third mechanism is permit restrictions on, on water abstraction. 
Among the first Israeli military orders after the June 1967 um, uh, occupation um, was, to, was a military order to establish strict limits on Palestinian access to abstracting groundwater. The order established limits on the depth of wells and required permits for both digging and upgrades. The effect across the West Bank has, do, has been to, to limit Palestinian access to water sources, both for agriculture and domestic uses. In the Jordan Valley, these restrictions have had two effects. First, they have limited the capacity of, of Palestinian villages to adapt to Israeli water takings. They also, um, Palestinian villages are also unable to, uh, to adapt to effects of the conflict. Um, for instance, a huge population was transferred after 1967 to Bardala. Um, uh, or the creeping effects of climate change, which has increased agricultural water demand throughout the West Bank, including in the Jordan Valley. The restrictions also have the effect of, of increasing input costs for agriculture and domestic and, and um, the domestic cost of living, as Jordan Valley residents have increasingly turned to buying water, buying piped water from the Israeli national water carrier, which is sold to Palestinians in the Jordan Valley for roughly 25, um, 25 Israeli shekels per cubic meter, even though it's sold substan at, at, for substantially less to neighboring Israeli settlements. The fourth mechanism is the pollution or degradation of water source. This tends to happen, um, this has been documented as happening outside the, the Jordan Valley largely, but we do have um, cases where, where um, Israeli settlements dump either human waste or wastewater and, and, but, or increasingly industrial wastewater into water sources. Um, in, in Palestinian communities. Again, this can have the effect of, um, of effectively limiting Palestinian access to, to fresh water that can be used for both domestic and agricultural uses. It, there, may, there is some evidence that this practice has also been linked to gastrointestinal but also cancer rates for Palestinians in, in communities, both in the Jordan Valley and, and more broadly in the West Bank. The fifth is denial of access, the fifth mechanism is denial of access to existing water resources. The Israeli permitting structure related to building has functioned to effectively limit Palestinian access to, to existing water sources. Especially Bedouin in the, in the Jordan Valley are limited, had, are limited in access to water because of an Israeli refusal to recognize even long-standing Palestinian settlements. Bedouin were pushed from their traditional transhumans routes and have been forced to settle often in areas in, in, um, in communities that are located in Area C and subject to Israeli determinations of closure, but also determinations of, um, of uh, uh, determinations that, that building cannot be done in that area. Um, so they are subject to multiple attempts at, at demolition. Last summer, this pattern was, was on display as the Bedouin community just, uh, just outside Bardala in the northern Jordan Valley had secured water for their settlement from, from a nearby source. 
Thanks to international solidarity visitors, the Israeli military was caught on camera, and, and it was a video that went, that went viral, um, using bulldozers guarded, guarded by heavily armed soldiers to uproot water lines to homes in the community. Um, and it was indicative because this is not something that's rare. This is something that happens on a regular basis. The last mechanism I wanted to mention was the transformation of water sources. In the last decade, there's been a great deal of excitement in the technology world about Israel's prominence in wastewater treatment and reuse and desalination. The use of WWTR inside Israel is indeed impressive, and there's been increasing interest among the donor community um, in investing in these technologies for Palestinian com agricultural communities. The geographer Julie Trottier argues that the introduction of these technologies ought to be, ought to be um, taken with, with a grain of salt, or put differently, ought to be viewed with some skepticism. In the Jordan Valley, um, her, she, she went and she documented what was happening as wastewater treatment and um, wastewater treatment and reuse technologies were implemented. What, that, what seemed to be happening was, was decreasing area that was devoted to traditional fruit and vegetables, and rather increasing date, date specifically majdul dates, which are, um, are highly valued in the international market right now. When she went back to look at the ownership pattern, she found that, that the ownership, was, ownership system was also contracting. So you have an individuation of Palestinians who have sufficient amount of money to invest in this wastewater treatment technology. The changes in ownership have, have an effect as well on who's working. So whereas um, Palestinians for hundreds of years had worked in a share crop type of arrangement producing fruits and vegetables, there had been a transformation so that um, so that we now saw many fewer, um, much less employment for, the, for that local population. Farther up the mountain in Tubas, which is just on the western edge of the Jordan Valley, um, uh, Jean Perrier, who's a rising um, uh, political science, scientist from, uh, from France, Julie Trottier's student, uh, recently completed a fantastic dissertation where she, where she looked at wastewater and treatment and, and reuse technologies in the Tubas area. And what she discovered was the dismantling of centuries-old uh, governance systems that had been maintained, um, that effectively maintained ownership for Palestinians. While while I think we can't say that these technologies are bad in all cases, I think we have to be careful about the extent to which the, the technologies actually take power away from the local, local residents and, and instead give that power to, um, to, to moneyed interests who may be easily swayed for in, in terms of transforming um, ownership and access to resources in the Jordan Valley. Let me, in my final moments, turn to, uh, turn to modes of resistance, because these, the, these moves are not simply accepted by, by victim Palestinians. Indeed, within the Jordan Valley, there have been 
um, significant efforts by Palestinian groups to try to resist. Jordan Valley Solidarity has engaged with Bedouins, coming up with ingenious ways of rebuilding houses after they have been, they have been bulldozed. The Good Shepherd Collective on the other end of the Jordan Valley has been, has been working likewise with, with Palestinian, um, Palestinian communities, also resisting efforts to, to um, demolish and, and evict Palestinians from their land. Um, there have been major uh, demonstrations around the protection of springs as, as Israelis have tried to move in to, to, to take out springs in the, in the Jordan Valley. All of these, um, it is important to note, happen, uh, are successful in part because they engage with international solidarity. So groups like Jordan Valley Solidarity is explicitly involved in reaching out to, to people outside of um, Israel-Palestine, asking them, asking them to come on delegations, asking them to see. Indeed, it was, it was um, internationals who were there in Bardala who could, who could document what was going on in terms of the efforts, of, of, um, the efforts to to destroy water lines and to evict Palestinians. Additionally, the Good Shepherd Collective is involved not only in working with international solidarity groups, but also asking them to mobilize, um, mobilize to bring pressure on those groups that are actually funding settlement activities from the US in the Jordan Valley. So, it, so the mobilization is, is equally important for how we address this and how we think about um, bringing about some form of justice in terms of uh, addressing water denial in the, in the Jordan Valley. So I'll close with that and would be happy to, to talk later. Thank you so much, Dr. Gasteyer, for this comprehensive uh, um, presentation and uh, hoping uh, together with Dr. Tamimi we'll be able to kind of really uh, look at these mechanisms again uh, in the Q&A and try to see how can we actually dismantle, how can we actually challenge and transform uh, such uh, shackling mechanisms. Um, without further ado, we'll hear from Dr. Abdurrahman Tamimi. I'll just introduce you quickly, Dr. Abdurrahman. Uh, Dr. Abdurrahman Tamimi is Assistant Professor of Strategic Planning and Future Studies at the Arab American University and a part-time lecturer at the Institute of Sustainable Development at Al-Quds University. He has extensive experience in the field of water resource management, water governance, water policy, institutional building and reform, and water resource planning. He is the author of the book, Water Privatization and Regional Political Agenda, and co-author of the report, Mediterranean Challenges 2030. He has served as a member of the Palestinian counterparts to the European Commission and the World Bank before, uh, before before the establishment of, of the Palestinian Authority and served as a consultant of a number of institutions whose primary work is on developing water and environmental projects in the occupied territories. He is in charge of the Climate Change Adaptation National Strategy and is a member of the Water Sector Planning Strategy. Dr. Tamimi has recently been appointed as a member of the National Reform Committee and the National Committee for Social Agenda and Poverty Alleviation. Uh, Dr. Tamimi, uh, uh, I would like to um, welcome you, and uh, it, it would be great if you can offer us a, a perspective on what does annexation actually mean uh, on mm -hmm. the ground. Um, please, the floor is yours. 
thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dejani, and thank you to Stephen to uh, join me with this uh, presentation. And uh, actually, uh, I want to thank also the co-organizers, uh, Park and uh, the Palestinian Institute for Studies. Uh, actually, I, I'm going to, to highlight uh, several important points uh, uh, just to continue what uh, uh, Dr. Gestier said uh, about the future. And I will focus on the future more than uh, the history, but the history is, the future is the continuation of the history. The, uh, I will uh, highlight the trend of Israeli policy, the main points of the Israeli policy, and also I will uh, have a look to the Israeli's policy uh, uh, after Oslo, and also the new Israeli strategy for water inside Israel and in West Bank and uh, in the occupied Palestinian territories, and also the impact of annexation to, to the Palestinians' daily life, socioeconomic, and stability in the region, and uh, at the end, I, I will uh, try to explain how the future will be. Uh, for the trend of uh, Israeli policy, I, I will not go uh, in details because uh, both uh, previous speakers mentioned that, but I will highlight three major things And uh, as hydrologist, as water engineer, not as Palestinian or as politician. Uh, the first one in early 50s, the Israelis, they diverted the Jordan River from the Al-Hula Lake. And in my opinion, it was not only mismanagement of the water resource, but disaster for the environment. And they discovered this disaster after 15 years, maybe. The second thing that uh, the diversion of the Jordan River through the Israeli national water carrier. 60-65% of the Jordan River uh, 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 diverted to inside Israel uh, till the uh, north of uh, desert of Negev and uh, to irrigate the trees there, not to, to, to have drinking water for people. And uh, this has impacted negatively the level of water in the, in the Dead Sea. And that's why Dead Sea is shrinking and the water level goes down and down. The third thing what they did, the Israelis, is actually uh, the, in, after 1967, the Israelis, they, uh, after one month of the uh, war, they uh, declared several military orders, and that military orders actually uh, annexed all Palestinian waters to the Israeli uh, Ministry of Defense or to the uh, IDF uh, in West Bank. And this is maybe the only, the only place in the world water is managed by military officers. And I'm, I'm talking here from a technical point of view, regardless of what I am. Uh, because uh, the military people, they are unable to manage the water resources perfectly. And from management point of view, I think it is also disaster. Uh, and... and uh, not only disaster from technical point of view, disaster from the uh, decision-making process. That, that's uh, important to, to, rem to remind. The other issue was Oslo. In my opinion, you know, Oslo is a start with capital O and end with a small O. And since uh, 25 years, we are uh, running between two zeros, two O's. 
uh, owes and uh, what we got nothing. Uh, Oslo has uh, five major problems in my opinion. The first one is the Joint Water Committee. I saw in the chat uh, page that uh, some people they are talking about Joint Water Committee. The Joint Water Committee simply six Palestinians, six Israelis, but the, uh, the uh, decision take uh, always they take the decision by consensus and uh, the Israelis they have the veto right because uh, the, the the projects there, which is subject to this to be discussed, is Palestinian project. Nothing to say for Palestinians because it's nothing to to say with Israeli projects. That's why uh, the Israelis always they have uh, always they have uh, uh, veto right. Not only veto right from the six persons they are attending the meeting, but the Israelis they take the application and they distribute it to 16 Israeli departments, uh, and also they have the, the veto right. Uh, and one of them is the uh, Settlements Council. And uh, always uh, that uh, Settlements Council says no for any Palestinian project. Uh, the, the other thing in Oslo, it's uh, a disadvantage or a shortcoming is uh, Jordan River is not mentioned there. No word, no any word about the Jordan River. Uh, even if the water is delayed to the final status of negotiations, but uh, Jordan River is not mentioned. Like for example, in the Jordanian uh, agreement with the with the Israelis, Jordan River there is a specific section in in Wadi Araba uh, in Wadi Araba agreement. Uh, and uh, the third uh, thing which is also important, the Israelis, they said uh, in the first article of, uh, of the agreement, I mean the chapter of water, uh, Israel recognizes the Palestinian water right. But in the fourth article, they said the ownership of the resources will be discussed in the final status negotiation, which means, and when I asked myself, the Israeli negotiators, what do you mean? They said, water use right, not water ownership right, what we recognize. And, uh, and that uh, also, uh, it, it is a problem. The, the fourth problem is the Palestinian assumption that the uh, Oslo agreement will, it is interim agreement and will finish in 1999. That's why they, uh, they agreed in uh, the compromise. But uh, since 1999 till now, the Palestinian population almost doubled. But the water amount allocated to the Palestinians almost 60% less. And this is a, a huge problem in, in managing daily life of the Palestinians. The last thing of the, of the, of the Oslo uh, agreement, uh, they are talking about additional water. In Oslo agreement, they're talking about uh, additional water to the Palestinians, 70 to 80 million cubic meter. But uh, as I said, the wording there was very important because they say that the additional need of the, the future need of the Palestinians is 70 to 80 percent. But they didn't say which future, 10 years later, 15 years, 20 years. And that's why the Israelis, they say this is in the future. And when, when that future will come, will come, nobody knows. That's why also uh, there is a problems and there is a, uh, let me say, uh, unwilling to solve the problems uh, 
in uh, Oslo Agreement uh, itself. Now, what is the Israeli new strategy? The Israelis now, uh, they have uh, 12 uh, desalination plants. And this is published. There's nothing secret there. I am not discovered secret there. Uh, the, uh, the Israelis, they have 12 desalination plants, four already constructed, four under construction, and four plants to be constructed. And uh, I'm quoting uh, Shemuel uh, Tal, the ex-Israeli uh, water commissioner. He said uh, in published paper, the uh, Israelis, they will have extra water from desalination in, in 2025, uh, around 250 million cubic meters. And the, the market for that extra water is the Palestinians. And he didn't say, but, but this is what's happening now. All Palestinian water in the Jordan Valley and also the water wells annexed by uh, by uh, the uh, the wall, by the wall, uh, apartheid wall. Uh, uh, also, uh, uh, all that water will be used for expansion of the settlements. But what is new there? The settlements now in Palestine is uh, it has a new characters. Uh, uh, they they started to do uh, agricultural settlements, especially in. Uh, in uh, not only in the Jordan Valley, they used to do in the Jordan Valley since 1967, but now in the mountain areas, because the Israelis, they are unable to attract more people to the West Bank. I mean, uh, to, to increase the population of the settlements. That's why they start to bring the industry and the agricultural people to come to the West Bank. And of course, one farmer can uh, control thousands of acres. Uh, there is no need for population there. Uh, and this is what's happening now in the mountain areas and in the Jordan Valley. And all Palestinian groundwater will be used to expand the agricultural and industrial settlements in West Bank. Uh, while the Palestinians, they will be the customer of the Israeli desalination plants at commercial basis. This is what they say at commercial basis and between two private sectors. And in my opinion, one of the major mistakes of the Palestinians, when they signed the uh, Oslo agreement, they accepted, and this is, uh, we are blaming ourselves, they accepted uh, to uh, the Palestinian Authority counterpart in water negotiation will be Mikarot, not the Israeli government. And Mikarot is, is a different legal status and has nothing to do. Uh, th th this is what, what happened in Oslo, but uh, Oslo, in my opinion, is, uh, uh, is over and nobody is talking about Oslo now, they're talking about the annexation. And what does mean annexation? I'm really surprised that uh, the whole world talking about annexation, like it's new, it's not new, it's not new. The Israelis, they annexed 30 wells and more than 5% of the Palestinian West Bank when they constructed the apartheid wall. And already this is part of Israel. And, uh, and in my opinion, the wall, the main driver behind the wall was to control water. And I will explain why. And the, the other things in the Jordan Valley, since uh, uh, 1967, thousands of acres in, in the Jordan Valley 
not accessible to the Palestinians, is totally controlled by Israelis. That's why the, what's new is, is a, new, a new wave of annexation, not, uh, not uh, new things. That's, uh, that's important to, to, to remember. Now, what's, what, why it is uh, the wall, uh, the apartheid wall is part of water strategy in Israel? In 1991, when the Madrid conference started, the so-called peace conference, the, uh, in that time, the Minister of Agriculture in Israel was Rafael Etah. And he put advertisement, official advertisement, in the Jerusalem Post in, uh, in August 1991. He said why the, why the Israelis should not give up the mountains of the West Bank. And he mentioned because the mountain of the West Bank is the, the, uh, the recharge areas of 300 wells along the green line in Israel. And if we give uh, the authority to the Palestinians, to the mountain areas, that wells will, which is in the discharge area, will be affected. That's why he suggested to move the green line from six to eight kilometers to the east and in his opinion, this is will keep the whole discharge area in Israeli hands. Then in, 19, in 1995, when was uh, the, the Minister of Defense of Israel was Zhak uh, Mordechai, he published a map called Separation Map or Two Nations Map. Uh, and in that map, he suggested to, uh, to move the, the green line to the east, 12 kilometers. And he put in the map also the track or the path of the, of the wall. If you see his map in 1995, and the map of the wall is 95, I'm engineer, 95% overlapped. By in, I put it in, uh, in, uh, to overlap both tracks, and 95% is the same line uh, drawn by Ishaq Mordechai. What happened uh, after that? And they started to construct the, the wall. And what is the impact? And what is the Israelis' philosophy behind that? Now, they, the, their philosophy is after 10 years, and this is what happened actually, after 10 years of construction of the wall, there will be, because most of the water will be annexed to Israel in Jenin, Tul Karim, Kalkili area. And there will be no irrigated agriculture in that area. And that, that areas are the, the only irrigated areas in the West Bank in the mountain areas. Uh, we have two irrigation areas, the, the Mount Jenin, uh, Kalkilia, Tul Karim, and the Jordan Valley. Now, in the in Kalkilia, Jenin, Tul Karim areas, the wall annexed all the, the groundwater wells or the majority of the productive wells. And there will be no irrigated agriculture. The second, uh, the second point, most of the Palestinian agricultural workers started because they left uh, their lands because there is no water. They started to work in Israeli agricultural uh, 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 farms and uh, kibbutzim. The third thing, which is very important in my opinion, what is the Israelis' philosophy? If one day we will back to the, the final status negotiations and the Palestinians demand water for agriculture, the Israelis, they will say, hey, no agriculture there. Well, why you want more water? 
That's why the Israelis, they want to end the final status negotiations before the negotiations, before uh, any, any future negotiations. Now, if the Israelis annexed, that area is already annexed, and 20% of the Jordan River already annexed under different names, sometimes settlements areas, sometimes security zones, sometimes buffer zones, sometimes uh, there is uh, different names. If the Israelis uh, continue with the, if the Israeli continue with the, their plan to annex the whole Jordan Valley, which means 70% of available resources to the Palestinians will be under Israeli control. And I'm quoting uh, Mr. Netanyahu, he said, the Palestinian farmers there, there will be there, we will uh, allow them to continue their farms, but as investors, not as citizens in their countries. And they, we will apply the investment rules there. And of course, the Palestinians, they will uh, be under pressure. And this is, uh, uh, this is uh, in my opinion, uh, one mechanism is to force them to, to leave, especially the Bedouin communities because they, they are scattered and very small communities, easy to remove them. But uh, which means the Palestinian agriculture in the Jordan Valley, which is 70% of the uh, food, uh, food basket of the Palestinians, will, will finish and uh, will, will be uh, disappear. And the 20% from Tul Karim Jenin uh, Kalkilia areas will also disappear, which means the Palestinians' food basket will be from Israeli market. And this is what, what, is, what will happen. The second thing what will happen also, uh, in, in, in my opinion, Israelis, they want to use the Jordan Valley as attractive area for tourism, uh, tourism for uh, short, uh, short stay vacations, and, uh, uh, and also for expansion of the Israeli settlements in the Jordan and Valley. Uh, uh, and which means that uh, the Jordan Valley uh, actually, except Jericho City, will be under Israeli control, taking into consideration 70 to 80 million cubic meter from uh, Al-Fashkha Springs, uh, uh, we call it Al-Fashkha Cluster uh, Springs, uh, uh, will be under Israeli control. The other consequences will be uh, if the Israeli uh, controlled totally the Jordan Valley and the, the Jordan Valley Basin, I mean the, the, the land there, uh, they will prohibit Palestinians to do any construction in the side valleys, uh, which is uh, water comes from the mountain areas with the small valleys to the Jordan Valley, and uh, they will uh, cut it, and they, uh, the Israelis, they will... Uh, I'm sure they will not allow to the Palestinians to do any small-scale dams uh, uh, to capture water or something like that, because they, they will claim this is the upstream, and the upstream country has no right to, to cut water from downstream, and this kind of uh, argument. If I, I'm trying to summarize, to, to go back uh, to the future. If I'm summarize the, what I'm going to say, the Israelis' policy is not new is accumulated, integrated. What, what the soldiers say is the same words of the, uh, of the settler, of the same word of the politician. That's why the Israelis, they have 
harmony in, in annexation policy. There is no differences between Israelis and uh, don't care about the small words, differences between uh, left and right in Israel. It's uh, the same differences between Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola. Uh, it's, it's nothing uh, different. Now, what is the future? In my opinion, the main, if the annexation happened, the, the main impacts as follows. The first one, there will be no mean for Palestinian state. The Palestinian state will be virtual state, flag, resident, ministers, but there is no sovereignty, there is no control, and there is no content for that, for that state. Because Jordan Valley areas is 25%, Jericho, Jerusalem is 10%, and uh, the uh, areas are annexed by and the Palestinian areas will be scattered, fragmented, and uh, will be, you can call it uh, anything, but not state. Maybe we, because we'll be scattered, isolated islands, maybe it's better to call it United States of Palestine, uh, because uh, this is, will be scattered, uh, scattered uh, uh, isolated islands, and uh, you can call it anything except uh, Palestinian state. The other thing also, the uh, force or uh, or voluntary uh, immigration because in the Jordan Valley, if the Palestinian, uh, uh, if the Israelis continue controlling the Jordan Valley, the li the life will be there uh, impossible without water, without agriculture, in very hot area. There is nothing to do if there is no agriculture. Then the Palestinians will start to move, and I think we will. We will uh, not. Uh, we will uh, witness a third wave of immigration, but internal immigration in Palestine. And the other thing, which in my opinion, all these things, nobody can guarantee Middle East. Middle East is like sand dunes, movable. Nobody knows where is the final destination. But if the Israelis continue, uh, it's a plan to annex. Jerusalem and uh, and Jordan Valley, uh, I'm I'm sure there will be no stability in the region, and uh, uh, this lack of stability will be spread out to the whole uh, region, and the region doesn't need more uh, chaos and more violence. And actually, the main drivers of this chaos and violence is the unlimited ambitions of Israeli leaders. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Tamimi, for also another uh, thought-provoking and very much uh, kind of a confrontational type of uh, intervention to kind of really uh, get us thinking about exactly what is the future, what does the future hold if actually the present is filled with so much, uh, you know, dispossession and uh, disenfranchisement that has been decades long. Um, I just wanted to really uh, uh, just quickly kind of try to, to uh, raise a few points and then really allow uh, allow um, the, our audience to to cast their questions. Um, but I just wanted to kind of to highlight from both Dr. Gastire and Dr. Tamimi's talk is about um, again um, Oslo is uh, has been for very long very irrelevant, irrelevant, ineffective, and actually it took us it took us a few steps back in in, in our journey and our struggle for self determination. And especially, I think, in the Jordan Valley, and we see that so starkly, we see the, that the imposition of a settler colonial reality, 
with settler colonial infrastructure and assemblage or networks of, uh, of pipes and pumps connecting Israeli settlements and allowing it to con concretize itself in our landscape. At the same time, we see a parallel reality of dispossession, Palestinian uh, communities struggling to remain visible on the land, uh, especially that more than 90% of that land has been, uh, they've been, they've been uh, they are not allowed to even access, not alone grow uh, crops in or maintain a, a livelihood, uh, allowing for this internal displacement. And again, we say like, what is the alternative and what do we actually find on the ground? And I find it really interesting in both of your um, reflections is that, uh, especially also with Dr. Gastarier, that we, we should always think about, you know, Palestinians struggle to remain on the land as an active struggle. It's, uh, we don't see it just in terms of numbers uh, of uh, how many communities remained and, um, and on what lands do they remain, but kind of really try to, um, to strengthen uh, and through different mobilization and solidarity network to really uh, strengthen their, 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 their presence on the land. But on another level, also really hold Israel accountable. And I think, again, the international community has been complicit in the situation that we face today in the Jordan Valley and in, in Area C specifically, especially in the water sector. It's total dismissal and total disregard to Israeli violation and its attack and destruction of, uh, of infrastructure that it actually uh, spent taxpayers' money uh, to develop uh, without really holding Israel account accountable and throughout these decades not even developing a mechanism to hold Israel accountable to at least financially, uh, if not politically, to uh, you know, the destruction it has caused, not only to livelihood, but to uh, really any future, any, um, uh, any Palestinian future in the Jordan Valley. Um, and I think those actors should be shamed and blamed much strongly, I think, than we do uh, in the water sector. Um, second thing is the PA and also kind of, uh, you know, how also PA has been also complicit in commodifying that water. Today, pal uh, Palestinian buy so much, more than I think 60%, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Tamimi, we buy it directly from Mekarot. Um, and also, uh, Palestinians were not allowed to develop any new water so far. Uh, and as Dr. Tamimi also highlighted, we have become, you know, the, the consumers of, of Israeli manufactured water. Um, so while Israel controls our water on our, underneath our feet, it also develops new water and sells it to us. Um, uh, and these technologies that Israel is, is kind of pioneering, like Dr. Gastire mentioned, um, these technologies are not benign. They, are, uh, they might definitely be producing new water. Uh, but uh, that new water, the way it is um, distributed and the way that uh, un it, it is unequally um, produced uh, is really important to highlight. So today the PAs and with, of course, together with the donor community and the international community, they're kind of influx of, uh, you know, uh, interest and money flowing into developing infrastructure for treatment, wastewater treatment plant and reuse schemes in the, in, the, in the wrong locations, let's say, in areas A and B rather than in area C, this kind of really also exposes their complicity, you know, in what's happening today. And, and to, to highlight, you know, that how annexation today is not new for the residents, uh, for the Palestinian residents in the Jordan Valley, it has been the norm for decades, uh, for decades long. Um, and I think it's really important to really maybe uh, to kind of guide the discussion uh, in the next half hour to, to see how can we actually as water practitioners and as people who are uh, uh, working and interested in the Palestinian um, 
what sector, how can we actually hold these to account? Um, I know that uh, a, a group of Palestinian uh, water practitioners is now coming together in a collective to, to really see what can we do as Palestinian civil, civil uh, non-governmental organization and civil, uh, civil rights institutions, how can we actually come together to stand against annexation? Um, and I hope it's not a step it's it's a right step in the right direction, but I hope it's not too late uh, as as we slowly lose uh, you know uh, power and influence as civil society organizations and uh, water practitioners. Um, that is on one end, and another end, kind of um, um, the fact that we are speaking about communities that struggle, like Dr. Gastari mentioned. This is not a reality that is looming, uh, and that we are you know kind of trying to avoid but this is a reality for people on the ground just a few weeks ago 10 uh, water uh, 10 groundwater wells were were destroyed by israel uh, in 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 the jordan valley uh, this this story is not new the 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 discrepancy and the, the and the vast and the stark inequality between uh, Israeli agribusiness uh, and uh, industrial zones in the Jordan Valley, and the reality of Palestinians that we we should and, and, and we should ne never get uh, get it as a normalized picture of this uh, like desolate Palestinian communities struggling for uh, a few drops of water to um, to grow their crops. Um, and I think this is also another uh, concern: is that we should not always. Uh, place you know uh, this uh, kind of framing of victimhood on Palestinian communities I on on, on the contrary I, I think uh, what uh, their presence on the land and their their coping mechanisms that they have developed uh, because of the, uh, of Israel's settler colonial policy but also because of the uh, systematic neglect of the international community to them and kind of the prescription of, uh, of um, solutions that do not fit the, the, the political reality. Uh, we've seen hundreds and thousands of, uh, of donor-led projects that have provided rainwater harvesting tanks or, uh, or two-inch pipes to, to communities that struggled to get enough water that, that maybe were destro destroyed like a few weeks after they have done that without really coming back to these communities and working together with them rather just you know pouring that donor money into these communities just for, uh, for um, for the fact that uh, yeah, that the European Commission or uh, other countries are involved in Area C, and I think yeah, this needs to be also highlighted. Um, just to also yeah, like uh, you don't have to reply to all of these uh, reflections. Um, we have uh, a few comments also in the chat. So um, maybe one of them, I think, uh, and it was the first one, and I think it's nice uh, to maybe start with because it's kind of really asking. Uh, you know, about what is the status of uh, the institutions that the Oslo Accord has developed. Um, so today, if we speak about annexation, what, what will happen to, you know, these uh, very unequal institutions that have been developed, like the Joint Water Committee, for instance. So maybe Dr. Tamimi, if you can tell us um, what's the status of the Joint Water Committee and what do you think, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their role will be uh, if uh, and when annexation occurs? You're on mute, sorry. Up to my knowledge, uh, last 10 years, the Joint Water Committee has no official meetings, uh, except the last year was one uh, single meeting uh, officially, because the uh, Israelis, they, uh, they don't uh, 
want to, to officialize the relationship between and to make it formal between Palestinians and Israelis. And always there are, uh, there are meetings among the technical people, but there is no formal uh, meetings. Uh, and since uh, the Israelis announcement for annexation, uh, totally the relationship at technical level and at uh, institutional level, the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis totally stopped. And in my opinion, not only since uh, uh, Netanyahu in, uh, in, in his power, on the power, since that time, the Joint Water Committee almost uh, inefficient and there is no progress uh, and output of the Joint Water Committee. Thank you. And just uh, just to finish that question and to give it its fair attention, uh, because it also asked about what is the status of a lot of, uh, you know, these infrastructure projects that have come up that kind of have a co like cooperation, uh, you know, character, like the Kidron Valley Treatment Agreement, the Red Dead project, uh, and how are they yeah. going to be affected by the Kushner economic plan? That was uh, the, the first question. Yeah, I think there is two, two, two parts there. Uh, First of all, the infrastructure uh, is uh, in Palestine or in West Bank uh, with the many donors' money is, is fine because this is uh, uh, reduce the leakage. Uh, this is also improve the quality of water. Uh, some uh, villages, they used to have no networks. Now they have networks, but the amount of water is, uh, is the same. There is improvement of infrastructure, but there is no improvement uh, of, of resources to supply this infrastructure. And I'll just uh, finish the, uh, a, a draft paper. 30% uh, of the Palestinians nowadays in West Bank, they are uh, receiving water less than one week, one day a week. And 25% uh, they uh, receive water less than five hours a week. And uh, if, you, if you calculate that, uh, 50% of the Palestinians are uh, insecure from water point of view. And Ramallah, which is the shadow, shadow capital of, of, of uh, Palestine, and uh, almost very, very good in, in water, used to be very good in water services. Now we have just two days a week of water. That's why the infrastructure is illusion. You have good infrastructure, a huge of money from donors invested in infrastructure, but no, 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 no water. And I know village in the north of West Bank called Tayasir. They constructed a new network since 15 years, but there is no water running in this network. And they asked the authority to rehabilitate the network because it's destroyed. Uh, this is this is the situation. Now to come back to the Red Dead Sea, in my opinion, this is a. Uh, the, the original project is dead, is dead. Now uh, they are talking about uh, desalination plant in Aqaba because they, the only thing they collected around 400 million cubic meter, uh, sorry, 400 uh, uh, million dollars for uh, around uh, 150 million cubic meter desalination plant. And this desalination plant will be in Aqaba uh, and they will give 30 to 40 million cubic meter to Elad city, and the Jordanian will be compensated from the north, uh, from uh, Tiberias Lake to the Erbid and Ramtha, the north of, of Jordan. Uh, the Palestinians there nothing to, to say, and even the Israelis, uh, they are the Israelis' uh, point of view. Palestinians are beneficiaries of the project, but not uh, partner of the project.
And uh, uh, from technical point of view, if we desalinate water in minus 400 in the, in the Dead Sea, you know, there is minus 400, and uh, uh, bump it to the demand center in Hebron in, uh, in Halhul, 1,700 meters above the sea level, uh, I think the, it's cheaper for Palestinians to drink whiskey more than water. A good point, Doctor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Thank you so much. Nice. And I and I do think that's uh, that's a that's a, a point that's worth emphasizing is that the um, the direction that the discussions about the Red Dead Canal have gone has been toward uh, uh, pay a fee for service kind of model. So not only would it be water that would be used as a rationale to continue the the dispossession of Palestinians of their own water, but it would be water that would come at a very expensive cost. Um, and so you would be running into a problem in, in the West Bank of, of actually water affordability if you start costing out what the actual cost is of delivering those services. And definitely this kind of goes, uh, the same goes to, you know, all of these technological solutions that are being on offer for, for, the, for the besieged Gaza Strip. Uh, the idea that, you know, desalination is the savior of the day, uh, not taking into account, you know, the environmental impact and the economical price that desalination, desalinated water will, uh, will be for, you know, for a, um, a population that has been under siege for so long. Uh, and this is again avoiding the politics and relying on the technical and the commodification and the marketization of water, uh, you know, rather than you know addressing the political uh, realities. Um, Dr. Gastario, there was um, a question about Palestinian resistance, and um, um, I'll, I'll maybe just uh, read it out because I think it's uh, comprehensive. Um, it said that um, you speak of Palestinian resistance that is happening all the time, with or without international. Solidarity. In other words, the communities that you speak of who are most impacted on the ground resist in ways that may be less visible to the international community and yet are the essential work that Palestinians practices to survive, resist and persist. Um, but also it's an essential work. It's concealed through the focus on, you know, oh, it, if it's, it falls within the international solidarity, if it falls within the international yeah. understanding, you know, of a, a, a meaningful struggle or a deserving struggle for attention and, and action. And, and yeah, what, so maybe the complexity around yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I conflated the, the resistance work and the work in terms of solidarity um, in uh, because I knew I was running out of time, frankly. Uh, but, but I think it's really important to recognize the extent to which there is ongoing resistance, um, both in the West Bank in general and in the Jordan Valley. Uh, you know, it's uh, a wonderful story that I that uh, I remember from visiting the Jordan Valley a year ago was uh, Jordan Valley Solidarity, which was working most largely with Palestinian volunteers to reconstruct villages as, as the Israelis would come in and destroy them. And uh, actually, the, the work they did was in, in going back and looking at the military orders to destroy those, those settlements, uh, Palestinian uh, settlements, Palestinian buildings, and realizing that the military order actually talked about corrugated tin, talked about cement. They didn't say anything about mud bricks which is of course what Palestinians traditionally used in the Jordan Valley to build houses. And so they set up a, a, a facility where they were actually making mud bricks and constructing the houses, reconstructing the houses so people could live using mud bricks, um, which was um, 
outside of the realm of the, of the Israeli military order. And so it allowed Palestinians, again, staying in place is the, is, is the first part of resistance to this Israeli strategy of annexation. And this allowed them to stay in place, right? Allowed them not to be, uh, not to be evacuated. Um, but so, so there are incredible, and you know, I, basically all you have to do is drive through the West Bank on a Friday and you know there is resistance, right? The resistance continues. There are demonstrations on a regular basis. These are indigenous Palestinian demonstrations, often around water resources. Um, and they're, they're very important. Um, my point about solidarity though, is that we have to recognize that the Israelis themselves are bringing in solidarity from the outside. That it's not just the Israelis who are making their own way. The Israelis are garnering huge amounts of resources, both in terms of money from, from, uh, money from the, uh, the, from, from the international community and in terms of people who come to further their cause, right? And, and so I think it's, it's absolutely makes sense that Palestinians also should leverage that, that international solidarity, that this is part of, um, part of being able to resist is networking internationally and, and using those connections that are international as that not now that the resistance should be Palestinian led. We're not talking about bringing in that, that uh, Palestinians are the ones in the, in the middle of the struggle. Um, but I don't think there's any problem with recognizing the, the importance of bringing in internationals who can be, who can stand in solidarity. Um, so, uh, so that was really my point is that the, that they, they, they sh that international solidarity should be seen as a tool and a very important tool. It is not in and of itself the entirety of the, of the um, resistance. The resistance is really indigenous. Um, uh, I would like to point, uh, there were a number of calls to put up a map and I actually have a map available on my screen. Would, would it be helpful to do that at this point? Yeah, I think so. I was yeah, wondering about that as well. Uh, yeah, it would be uh, if we can put it up while we answer the rest of the questions. Sure. Um, if I don't, I don't have screen sharing ability. Uh, with that. I just wanted to just follow up on your point, uh, Dr. Gastar, about you know the fact that yeah, and like the the actual idea of like how can we mobilize much further than uh, the geographic location of Palestine and kind of start, you know, uh, building solidarity with other nations and other people uh, of color, marginalized uh, communities around the world and um, indigenous communities that are also leading like almost identical struggles, you know, especially yes. in the colonial context. Like I would, I remember that uh, with the indigenous Dakota pipeline um, and movement and mobilization that happened, there was a Palestinian solidarity there and uh, there's a lot more happening. So there is a lot of kind of networking and uh, solidarity building that I think is really, uh, um, there is a lot of potential there, especially that uh, just relying, you know, on telling the story, um, but engaging, you exactly. know, with other struggles and understanding how we can actually uh, work uh, transnationally. Uh, the, and the fact that Israel also uh, transports and uh, um, 
transfers its technology elsewhere around the world. So it's more of uh, privatization and intensive agriculture te technologies are being, you know, shipped all around the world uh, with, uh, you know, with the descent uh, of a, a lot of uh, farming, farming communities and lo local uh, farm holders. Uh, so I think uh, local land, small farm holders as well. So I think this is also another potential where uh, we as Palestinians uh, could actually reach out to communities and build a much uh, stronger network of support and solidarity. Um, yes, uh, if you can maybe zoom it because right now um, it's just showing the whole. Uh, I see. Yes, I should be able to. Um, I'll go to the next question. Um, so Dr. Abdurrahman, there's a question uh, on um, what do you think of the of international and regional solutions for water equity in the Jordan Valley? And do you think, are, are they more effective than depending on Palestinian efforts? I think that Jordan Valley is, you know, the, it's, it's the only service water in the whole region shared by uh, Jordanian, Palestinians, Israelis, Lebanon, and Syria. And I think the solution should be regional to uh, share the Jordan Valley because uh, nowadays it's only Jordan and Israel they are benefit and very little uh, Lebanon uh, benefit from and uh, this is uh, not stable uh, and uh, not sustainable solution or, or arrangement actually because the Palestinians they will keep uh, uh, demanding their rights and the Syrians and Lebanon are, are now out of the any negotiations and this is uh, what what happened is uh, is is not practical and uh, in my opinion, the only way to solve the Jordan Valley uh, conflict on water is to, to have the five partners and to sit with the international community. Uh, and I, I prefer under the uh, UN umbrella to solve uh, and to share uh, water. And uh, the Palestinians accept the uh, Eric Johnston plan in 1953 when uh, uh, President Eisenhower sent Eric Johnston to, to the area and in that time the West Bank uh, uh, share was around 270 million cubic meter and we, 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 we accept that things which is unfair but we accepted that. And I think just one point on the transboundary, you know, water. I think uh, one one um, approach would be also to make sure that uh, you know transboundary arrangement are uh, transformative uh, in in their core. So they're not really just also yeah. uh, you know uh, re uh, remaking or remodeling. You know, it's the same uh, same um, inequalities that exist. Uh, between the different uh, riparian countries that we know uh, from fact and from history that Israel has really maintained is a hegemonic position, whether ideationally, whether with its ideas and uh, positions, or rather kind of also territorially, where it now controls the tributaries of the Jordan River, uh, the Yarmouk uh, tributary as well, and so on. So I think, yeah, it's transboundary is, of course, uh, a model that that can't take us there, but it should be transformative and it should be based on a justice uh, model. Um, so another question was about, you know, the alternative markets of water that we uh, touched on that uh, also uh, Dr. Abdurrahman, you touched on maybe, uh, where Israel or private sources commodify water to replace the development of publicly available water infrastructure. Uh, how does this affect or disenfranchise farmers? or those accessing irrigation sources. Uh, so basically, yes, the marketization of food. Yeah, I think uh, is a basic rule. Market needs stability and need uh, everyone to, to, to be part of that market. 
uh, I think the Israel is hegemonic uh, mentality. They don't want market. They want only uh, a, a provider, a, a water provider. And this is, in, in this case, Israel and the Palestinians and the region are consumers. This is the market that Israel is looking for, but we are looking mm -hmm. to be partner of the market. And also, uh, every solution is possible if there is a good willing and uh, also equal footing. But to be between a slave and, and master, this is, this is not a market. Yeah. Dr. Gastire, do you have anything to add? No, I I think the um, I think it's really it it is really important to think both critically and um, uh, both critically and creatively about about how things like regional markets can can provide opportunities to uh, to improve the situation. But I think what Dr. Tamimi ended with right that. Uh, trying to set up something like this where you have uh, a clear power differential really is deeply problematic. Okay. And I think it also kind of touches on the point that we raised earlier about kind of the, you know, the multiple multiplicity of water. Water is not only about, you know, how much is it, uh, how much is available when you open your tap and where do you get it from? But actually the fact that the Jordan Valley specifically is a water rich uh, region, uh, you have your Jordan River just a few hundred meters away from, you know, a lot of communities, but these communities were barred completely from accessing the Jordan River. The Jordan River became for us, Palestinians specifically, just a border uh, and, you know, a site of contestation, a site of separation between, uh, between us. Uh, so I think that is really important, kind of how to really re-signify, you know, the importance of such uh, water sources to our, not only to our livelihood, but to our cultural and heritage uh, as well, in order for us to, uh, you know, transform our Palestinian identity into uh, one that, that is, is rooted in the land, rather than, you know, looking at nature and land as, you know, uh, as uh, a resource to exploit as well, uh, only, or to, to privatize and to marketize. I think this is also a very important uh, point. Um, there's another question, again, about the resistance, and I think maybe um, uh, both of you could also uh, um, reflect on it. Um, so how, how effective do we uh, think that uh, Palestinian resistance is, uh, and is it enough to challenge settler colonialism, um, especially uh, through vis-a-vis -vis water dispossession? Uh, what should what can be done to make it more effective? And I think this is maybe a call to say, like, how can we actually empower, you know, uh, Palestinian resistance on the ground uh, through different means? And I think there was another question that I really liked about scientific solidarity. So how can we actually make sure that it is not so solidly political, but it can be also based on, you know, um, uh, also on like scientific work, and then we can actually reach out to new, uh, also new, um, uh, new groups uh, to to build solidarity with, rather than you know preaching to uh, to the same groups. This is for uh, me. It can be for for either. I think. Um, uh, I guess, Dr. Tamimi, if you want to start, and then I will add, or yeah. Yes, very very briefly. First of all. Uh, I think the the solidarity and the uh, local resistance, popular resistance, both are integrated each other and are, are complementary. However, my personal point of view is uh, is international community is very important, 
and the solidarity group uh, really highly appreciated and uh, they do good support to the Palestinians. But in my opinion, the first uh, thing we have to do as Palestinians is to harmony in our political speech between the people and the Palestinian Authority. Without this harmony, even the solidarity groups, they cannot support as uh, they want. That's why the precondition for effective uh, solidarity and international support to our, uh, uh, to our uh, resistance is to have a harmony, a harmony between Palestinian Authority and Palestinian people and to have a unified, clear voice what we want. I, I do think, though, that there's, there is a lot of room for doing scientific solidarity. So, so connecting those who are thinking about these issues. I think, uh, Dr. Jajani, what you, you foked, focused on was incredibly port, important. This is, Palestine is not the only place that has elements of, these, of this struggle. And so um, there's, there's lots of opportunities to draw on the efforts at resistance to colonization around the world. And part of that is a scientific effort, right? And part of that is, is actually thinking interdisciplinary, is interdisciplinarily. So it's, you know, as we think about the effects of putting in new kinds of water alternatives, thinking beyond just the economics of whether this will work and the engineering of technically can we make this work, to what are the implications on the local communities? What are the implications for, for um, the kinds of markets? What are the in implications for that Palestinian tie to the land, specifically through things like, um, like the, um, the gathering plants that Palestinians eat, Habezi, for instance? Which, which gets eliminated often in these schemes to make water more efficient, right? And, and thinking about how water is not just about how many drops do you get to a, to a particular plant that's going to be marketized, but what is the whole use of, of water resources and how does it integrate into the community and not just, um, not just in terms of delivering drops of water to a particular plant that gets so much money in a market. So, so I think those kinds of, uh, that kind of thinking can really be tied into this scientific community and, um, and would, be, would go a long way towards helping to address these issues. Thank you both. Uh, this was a very comprehensive answer. And I think it's a great, uh, you know, point to end uh, this uh, great discussion with, uh, um, again, with this kind of looming, uh, looming, uh, a very, um, this reality is the very, like, bleak uh, future that uh, awaits um, uh, Palestinians uh, in general, uh, everywhere, and especially in, in the Jordan Valley. Um, uh, I think yeah, this, this was a message of hope, but that hopefully that through, you know, uh, different solidarity networks, uh, scientific communities, water practitioners, that we'd be able to kind of uh, expose, you know, these realities and also uh, um, um, make sure that we reach out to the right legal, uh, institutional, um, international, uh, and also local and kind of look people inside as well and make sure that we are prepared. Uh, as Clemens mentioned in his comment eventually, how do we prepare for such scenarios? How do we make sure that not more dispossession happens uh, uh, in, in those, uh, those areas? And how can we make sure that, uh, you know, um, we will have 
you know, long-term strategies to fight this. And I think this is multi-scalar. Uh, multi uh, it, it really has to do with multiple actors that we need to kind of mobilize uh, on all levels. Uh, so um, I want to really thank you uh, both for this really stimulating discussion. Um, and it's really, I've learned a lot as well from it. And I'm sure uh, from, from all the comments, uh, I know that everyone really enjoyed this talk. Um, we would like to mention that uh, the recording will be available and will be shared uh, via email and YouTube as well. So for anybody who wants to, um, to revisit this talk or share it with other people who couldn't join, please do so. Uh, we really would like to thank our speakers, Dr. Gasteyer, Dr. Dr. Tamimi, um, and really thank uh, the Institute of Palestine Studies and uh, PARC, the Palestinian American Research Center, for allowing us you know, to have this uh, really virtual uh, discussion that is really important. So when annexation really is, is, um, is all over the news, it's good to kind of really hear it from uh, people who, um, who can tell us really what the realities of the situation and uh, especially on issues such as water that kind of really always go to the side. So thank you all and uh, I wish you all a lovely evening um, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you.